Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, July the 17th, 2022. It is currently 3.21 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And oh, we have so much to do. So much to do today, I don't even know where to begin. Well, no, I know exactly where we have to begin. I take that back. We have so much to do, but we have to start right here. We do. So welcome to another episode of the Bible Study Exercise, a podcast series that is designed to move you from a passive listener to an active Bible student. We do this by giving you assignments, giving you homework, and providing a curriculum so that you can use and read and, and well, to supplement everything we do in this podcast series. If you would like to catch up with the series, you're about 300 episodes behind, but by all means, download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E. Simply do a search for Theology Central. Once you choose us as your chosen selected broadcaster, simply look for series, go to Bible Study Exercise, and there you have all of the episodes waiting for you, and you'll be notified every time we go live, and you'll be notified every time we upload a new Bible Study Exercise. So download the Church One app today, okay? But that's what this series is all about, and we, well, it's Sunday. It's Sunday, I know if you're not used to the Bible study exercise series, you don't know what that means. That means we've reached the end of another week of study. In fact, technically, today is to begin a new week of study, but we cannot start the new week yet. So we have to finish the old week. In fact, we have to finish the last six weeks because really we have to bring the last six weeks of study to some kind of dramatic conclusion but that's not going to go as planned. So let me explain what's happening. Yesterday, I thought, you know what? We're getting close to the end of this study. And remember, we've been studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit now for six weeks. I'm like, we're getting very close to the end. I know what I'll do. We'll grab a sermon on the doctrine of sanctification because everyone connects the Holy Spirit to sanctification. I'm like, that'll be another interesting discussion as we end our study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And then to, then this is what I was thinking yesterday, Sunday, which is today, at about 6 p.m., standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll do a little bit more work on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and bring the study to a dramatic conclusion, but we will not be having in-person service tonight at Victory Baptist Church. So that part of it is already kind of messed up. So we may be doing that next week. So you may still get one more, maybe two more messages on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but uh, but the study really ends today. So if uh, what we'll do is later this afternoon, I will introduce the next week, the new week of study, but we'll still be doing, you'll still see a few messages showing up here or there on the Holy Spirit to try to bring this six-week study to some kind of dramatic conclusion. But what we have to do right now, the most important, the most important thing we can do right now is bring our, our discussion and our review of this sermon on the doctrine of sanctification to a conclusion, all right? Because this is so important. So much, when 
When we think about the evangelical world and their teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it constantly goes with this idea. Now that you have the Holy Spirit, you have power to do this. You have power to do this. Power, power. You have this, all these abilities, these powers. But yet over and over and over, we see that, well, we, we talk a big game, but the reality seems to contradict all that we claim. And this is very much seen when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, because it goes something like this. When you became saved, you got the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit empowers you to keep the law. The Holy Spirit now empowers you to meet all of the righteous demands of the law. So now you're saved, you can keep the law. Now that you're saved, you can obey all the commandments. The only problem with that is if that's true, then not only should uh, sinless Christians be probable, possible, it should be probable. I mean, if Christians now are free to keep the law, we should be sinless. We should be able to, to meet the commands of Scripture, like be ye holy as he is holy. However, no one ever pulls that off. So how can you say we have the ability to do something that no one ever does? Because I've yet to meet a Christian who is as holy as God is. So if we say we have the ability, but then no one ever does it, you have to consider it. But this is such a key part of the discussion about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we've been reviewing a sermon and well, guess where we ended up? Right where I knew we would end up, but I'm trying to let you hear as many different perspectives as possible. The sermon we are reviewing was preached at the Together, let's see, what is this? The uh, It's from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, this, I think, together, the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference 2020, uh, 2021, right? I think yesterday I said that together for the Gospel uh, Women's Conference, but I think it's the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference. I don't know exactly how I said it yesterday, but it's from that conference, 2021. The speaker was Ligon Duncan. And he is preaching on the doctrine of sanctification, and he's telling us that it's good news for the Christian. It's good news for the Christian, and he connects this doctrine of sanctification to the work of the Holy Spirit, which fits perfectly with our discussion for the last six weeks on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. All right? Together for the Gospel Women's Conference. Yeah, I think it's either, now that I'm looking at it, because it's found at the Gospel Coalition, it could stand for, because remember, they don't actually write it out. They just have TGCW. Someone in the, in the, uh, the comment section or in the chat section was asking, I, when I see TGCW, well, together for the gospel. Well, no, no, it wouldn't be together for the gospel because gospel doesn't start with a C. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right. It would be T together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, so I don't know what I was saying yesterday. So I think I think it's correct to say. Now, maybe at the beginning of the sermon, they gave the name of the conference. Maybe they did. When this is over, if we finish the sermon, I'll go back and start it over, and then we'll get the proper name for it, okay? So the, we know this. The sermon is found at thegospelcoalition.org. They just have it listed as TGC, which I think now stands for the Gospel Coalition. Makes sense. The W there stands for the Women's Conference. So it's TGCW, Together, together, not together, the Gospel Coalition Women's, all right, 
and then 2021. Okay. All right. So I think, I think that's, that's the correct way. I wish they had just written out the name of the conference. I wish they, instead of just giving me letters, if they would have just written it out, then there would be no confusion. All right. But when I saw it, I'm like, oh, together for the gospel. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't even make sense. Okay. So now the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference 2021. Ligon Duncan. Not, I know that we really don't care about all of that, but okay. Oh, we just want to be accurate. We just want to be accurate. But when, when this is over, I will go back and play the intro so that there'll be no confusion and I can offer any correction of any mistake I would have made. All right. Now, now I'm bothered. But according to him, sanctification is good news. Now I feel after listening to 17 minutes plus of this sermon, there isn't any good news because his good news is you're saved. You have the Holy Spirit. Now you can keep the law. Now you can meet the the righteous demands of the law. You have the ability to do so, which would mean when I read in the Bible, be ye holy as God is holy, then I can do that. But I've known throughout my entire Christian life, I never do that. I fall short. I don't love God the way I'm supposed to. I don't love my neighbor the way I'm supposed to. I'm not dead to self. I don't deny self. I, don't, I continue to follow self. I find myself sinning 24-7 in some way, shape, or form. And even my good deeds are still messed up, even though supposedly the Holy Spirit is giving me the power to do these things. So I don't think it's good news. In fact, I think it would lead any thinking person to conclude that either A, Christianity doesn't work, or B, they're not saved. But he's presenting it as, hey, hey, ladies, this is good news. All right. Uh, okay, that's interesting. All right. Uh, someone listening uh, is, has identified the location of where this 2021 sermon is, and they, they think that maybe they, they, the, the people in their church went to the conference. Well, they probably, uh, you may want to, you may want to ask them, Hey, you remember that conference where you were told you had the, the power to keep the law? How are you doing on that? How are you doing? Are you, are you doing okay? So I, I think it's a reasonable question. Not to be, it's not even about being sarcastic or snarky. It's just, did, what did you think about what you've heard? But we're going to go back and we're just going to jump in. Okay. Are you ready? All right. We got, we got so much to do today. All right. Here we go. Oh boy, I've backed this up to the 17 minute, 17 minutes, 10 second mark, because he's just about to once again tell us the good news that now you have power so that you can keep the law. Wow. I, I wish, I wish this was true. I, I wish preachers who say this would take five seconds to think about why so much sin is still in, in the church and why we, there's never any perfect Christians. I wish they would spend some time trying to explain that, but they don't ever seem to be in a hurry to explain that. They just want to tell you, hey, like an info commercial, you now have this, but I'm not going to explain to you why it's not going to work the way I just seem to indicate that it would. But here we go. Your justification by grace and your sanctification by God through the Spirit's work both ground your sense of freedom in the Christian life. It is the Spirit who enables you to live in such a way as to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Look especially at verse 4. The Spirit. There you go. So now you have the ability to keep the righteous demands of the law. Now, he's going to read verse 4. 
He's going to read verse four. Romans, it's Romans chapter eight, verse four. If you haven't, if you weren't, if you missed the last part, Romans chapter eight, verse four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And I'm going to say this again. The only way this even comes close to making any sense, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in me because the Holy Spirit is in me. And my, my, it's my connection and unity with God is how the righteous demand is met because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So the Holy Spirit is in me. Therefore, I belong to him. I am in Christ Jesus. This is this, the Holy Spirit in me is there to show my connection and my unity with Christ. I am in Christ in a sense, Christ is in me. I'm unified there because the Holy Spirit is in me. I'm identified by the presence of God. I'm identified by the imputed righteousness of Christ. What we teach is, okay, I get the imputed righteousness, but now I am infused almost. I am indwelt now with the spirit. Now the spirit gives me the power to keep the law. That's the way it's taught in the evangelical world. I couldn't keep the law. Now, but then God saved me, gave me an imputed righteousness, then gives me the ability to keep the law. Why didn't God just forgive me, give me the ability to keep the law, and then I just keep the law? I don't need imputed righteousness. Right? I mean, I, I, I now I can be obedient. But no, I, so, the, so the evangelical way is you're, you get imputed righteousness, then you get the spirit, which gives you the power to now keep it. I think the only way this works is, the Holy Spirit in me is there to identify me with Christ, that I am in Christ. It is in Christ that I keep the demands of the law because Christ kept the demands of the law. There's no other way to make this work and it make any sense at all unless you're going to believe in sinless perfection. But once again, we hear you have the power. Now you can do it. Now you can do it. Spirit's work in you does what? is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is very good news. In other words, it's not good news because I don't know any Christian who truly walks after the spirit, not after the flesh. We demonstrate that we walk after the flesh Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, late at night, constantly. We demonstrate that we walk after the flesh in the way we respond to our loved ones, to family. To, I mean, we, we see the flesh demonstrated constantly. So how can you be so deluded to think that something is not happening, which is clearly happening in your life? Christianity should not lead to us being delusional. Christianity should lead us to seeing the truth more clearly than we've ever seen it. And the, and the more clearly, the longer I've become, become a Christian, the longer I've been a Christian, the longer I have realized how sinful I am and how I, how sinful I still am. Continue. Words, God is more concerned about your sanctification than you are. And God's spirit is at work in you to accomplish the fulfillment of God's law. By the way, this is very similar, isn't it, to what Paul says. I want you to hear this. So God is more concerned about your sanctification than you are, and that the Holy Spirit is working so that you will keep the law. Now, I want you to think about how long have you been saved? A year, two years, 10 years, 15 years. 
I want you to think about how long you've been saved and the eternal, sovereign, all-powerful God is so, is more concerned about your sanctification than you are and that the Holy Spirit is working so that you can keep the law. I want you to think about how long this God has been doing work, doing that work and why, and ask yourself, how come you haven't reached sinless perfection by now? I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no good answer. God is more concerned about your sanctification than you are. And the Holy Spirit's working in you so that you can keep the law. Well, then by this point, you should be the greatest law keeper that is on the face of the earth. But you're not. And you know it. I don't care what you claim. I don't care what you're going to email me and tell me you do. You know you don't, and I know you don't, because we're sinners with a sinful nature. In Philippians chapter 2, would you turn with me there? In Philippians chapter 2, he says this. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the big picture of that little passage is simply this. Your obedience in the Christian life is all due to the work of God in you. And Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, that is especially the work of God's Spirit in you. So the good news of sanctification is God cares about your growth in grace. God cares about your godliness far more than you do. And he doesn't just say to you, okay, you're saved now. Go do it on your own. Go live the Christian life. He is at work in you. And your effort in the Christian life is based on what he is already doing in you. This is why Augustine very famously said, Lord, all the good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. So every evidence of growth in grace in the Christian life is due to the work of the Holy Spirit in us and in response to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's very good news. That's the first thing I want you to see. Okay. And I just have to ask a question. Okay. Every good thing, that's God. Every bad thing is my fault. All right. So does God not have the power to stop me from stopping him? He's in me. He wants me to be sanctified. He wants me to be holy. He's already identified that he gives me the power to be, to keep the law. So I have complete power to keep the law. So anytime, so I have the complete power. So anytime I don't, it's just because I don't want to. Well, why can't the work of the, of, of God in me overcome my want to so that I want to? Hey, any good, that's God. That's not you. 
God's the one who did it. Okay. And anything I don't do, that's my fault. That's not God. But why couldn't God overcome my want to so that it would want to so that I could then keep the the righteous demands of the law, which I supposedly have the ability to do so. All right. Um, Well, yeah, not only that, you do, you have people of other religions who supposedly do good as well without the Holy Spirit. We, we could get into a whole discussion about that. The whole thing just seems to fall apart. My thing is, is it sounds super spiritual. Let's quote Augustine. Hey, we quote Augustine. Man, it's got to be right, right? Okay. All right. But let me just, like, he doesn't even bother. He just quotes Augustine. He doesn't go, okay, guys, let's, let's take this apart. Let's consider it. All right. So any good in me, that's God. But any bad in me, that's my fault. Well, why couldn't God overcome me? So then there would be no bad and would only be good. So I'm more powerful than God. So God cares about my sanctification. He's given me the ability to keep the righteous demands of the law, but I have the power to just not do it. Now, here's the thing. The minute I stop doing it, then someone's going to say, well, clearly you're not saved because you have the power not to do it. It just becomes a, a weird, like, there's, there's never any actual struggling with the reality here. You've got the spirit in you. He wants you to be sanctified. God wants you to be sanctified. His desire is your sanctification. His desire is that. However, you can stop the process whenever you want. However, any good is God and all the bad is yours. Well, if if I'm the one determining whether it will happen or won't happen, then how can you say all the good is God? It would be me who's allowing God to do the work because I can obviously stop the work. So how can you say all the good is God if I'm the one who can say, nope, not going to do it today. So the the fault, I would be the one controlling the entire process. I mean, these, these are reasonable questions that any just any reasonable person should ask these questions. So I still don't understand exactly how this sanctification thing works. Let's see. Maybe he's going to clarify. Maybe it's all going to make sense before it's over. Let's continue. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Look at verses 1, uh, verses 5 to 11. Believers live according to the Spirit. That is, God's work of saving grace always produces heart changes in believers that are manifest in their lives. All right. Believers always walk according to the spirit because the spirit produces heart change that's manifested in our life. All right. So not only does he give me the power to do something, he also changes my heart to want to do something. So if I have the power to do it and I have a heart that wants to do it, then I don't even know how you could ever say there isn't sinless Christians. Sinless Christians should be everywhere. Everywhere you go, sinless, sinless. I go to church. 90% of the people in my church are sinless. It should be everywhere because not only you have the power to keep the righteous demands of the law, he's changing your heart so that you want to do it. Everyone should be sinless. 
And one of the great results of that is that you are now able to revel in the pleasure of God in you. Now just take that in. Believers live according to the Spirit. That is, God's work of saving grace always produces heart changes in believers that are manifest in our lives. And that means that we are able to revel in God's pleasure in you. I can just imagine the women there in that conference writing that down in their journal. Ooh, and they're probably putting an exclamation point. They're, they're drawing circles around it. Ooh, this is so good. This, I can't wait to get home and post it on my Facebook wall. Okay, all right. They're probably right there grabbing their phone and posting it on Facebook right then. It's, oh, that sounds so spiritual, but no one goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got problems here. So I have the ability to keep the righteous demands of the law and he's changing my heart. Why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep sinning? Why? Now, in this passage, I told you, he contrasts worldliness and godliness. And if you'll look at verses 5 to 8, he tells you what worldliness look like, looks like. Worldliness is that which sets its mind on the things of the flesh. In other words, one's thoughts, interests, desires, and purposes are focused on what you want in this life. Not. <laughs> yeah. Man, you go to church and most of the people you know, they, they don't, their mind is not set on the things that they want in life. It's not set on the flesh. All the people you know who claim to be Christians, it's constantly their thoughts and their focus is on the things of God. They care about the thing. They, they're not concerned about the flesh at all. They're not self-centered. They're not fleshly minded. It's spiritual spirit. It's just so wonderful. Yet churches split. Christian families fall apart. There's backstabbing, gossip, slander, sin, pornography. You can just go on, go down the fornication. Go, just go down the list. But no, 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 no. If you're a Christian, no, no, you, you don't mind the things of the flesh. You mind the things of the spirit. Oh, I do positionally. Not practically. Like, how can you say this with a straight face? You have to acknowledge, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's some, there's something wrong with our thinking. And not only that, remember how Romans chapter seven ended. The apostle Paul saying the things I want to do, I don't do the things I don't want to do, I do. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, some people say that was Paul expressing the problem. Chapter eight is the magical solution. So no, Paul no longer, he stopped doing that. He stopped serving the, the law of sin with his flesh. He stopped having problems doing the, uh, not doing the things he wanted to do and doing the things he didn't want to do. He fixed all of those problems. Well, obviously, if, if, if this is not, no. Oh, man. Okay. Let, let's see where they, how they continue here. Not on the will of God. Second, worldliness is hostile to God. That is, it doesn't like God's rule. It doesn't like God's will. It seeks to do what it wants to do, not what God commands in his words. Third, worldliness does not 
subject itself to the law of God. Just like Eve and Adam listened to the voice of the serpent, not the word of God, worldliness listens to the flesh, not the word of God. Fourth, worldliness is not even able to subject itself to the law of God. The, the worldliness, even though the worldling thinks, I'm going to do what I want to do. And what is that? That feels what? That feels free. I'm doing what I want to do. You are bound into slavery to the flesh when you're living life that way. When, when the principle is, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's the boss of me. God's not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Worldliness means that it's morally impossible to subject yourself to the law of God. And finally, the worldling cannot please God, verse 8. That is, it's absolutely impossible to experience the pleasure of God that way. Absolutely impossible. In contrast, believers, we're told, again, go back through 5 through 8, Believers set their minds on the things of the spirit. That is your heart, your reason, your desires, your will is controlled by the spirit. The purposes of your life are spiritual. You are at peace with God because of the justification that we talked about back in verse one. There's no condemnation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have been justified. There is no condemnation for you. You have peace with God because of what God has done for you in love. Third, you are, the Christian mind is subject to the law of God. That is, you say with the psalmist, how I love your law, Lord. You know that the word of God is not the result of God sitting up in heaven thinking, how can I ruin their lives? No, the word of God is meant to bless you. It is a conspiracy to bless you. God never commands anything that's not for your good. And therefore, you know how I love your law, Lord. It, it doesn't condemn me. It's, it's a rule for life that's meant for my blessing. Furthermore, you are able to subject yourself to the law of God. Why? Because the spirit has changed your heart. You're no longer in rebellion against God's word. You love his law. And okay, see, he's changed your heart. You're no longer in rebellion to it. So you can keep it. Now your heart is no longer against it. Your heart loves it and your heart is subjected to it. Now, I just want you to think about it. You have the ability to keep it. Your heart has been changed, so now you're subjected to it. And, and you have, you, you, you're, you mind the things of the Spirit. So your mind and your purpose and your focus is on the Spirit. This is supposedly true of every believer. Well, if you're, if you've now given the power to keep the law, you have a mind that's completely committed to the things of God, and your heart has been completely changed so that you've subjected yourself to it. Why can't there, why isn't there uh, sinless Christians? You're making the, these dramatic claims. It should be proven in action where there's sinlessness. Someone just said, what does he mean? I am able to subject myself to the law. Well, it seems that it means that you can surrender yourself to the law. He's already said that you can keep it. 
He's already said that you can keep it. Now your heart surrenders to it. Now you are not in rebellion to it. You don't resist it. You don't reject it. You surrender yourself to it. So basically, what are you saying? Is there, that not only is it possible, the probability there should be sinless Christians everywhere. Everywhere there should be sinless Christians. Sinless Christians should be the norm. The weird ones would be like, wait a minute, you're not sinless? What's your problem? Don't you know you've been given the ability to keep the law of God? Don't you know that you mind the things of God? Don't you know that God has changed your heart, that you have subjected yourself to the law of God? You sinlessness should just be the, the, the norm for Christians. But we've got 2,000 years of church history that shows that's not the case. Not only that, you've got, you've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week of your own life. As a result, you can please God. Now, let me just pause and say, the Christian's ability to revel in the pleasure of God is very different from trying to please a person who is unpleasable. To do the latter will just about kill you in life. To do the former is a joy. Let me explain. Um, One of the godliest women that I've ever known um, was the daughter of a single mother who was an unbeliever and her father left the family when she was a teenager and she really, she was converted as a teenager and really tried to dutifully serve her mom. But her mom was a very bitter person, very, very bitter, bitter about life. And consequently was always stuck in ingratitude. And I remember one day approaching her after church on a Sunday morning, and she was in tears. She had been caring for her mother whose health was deteriorating. And she said to me, Ligon, my mother said something to me today that she has never said in her entire life. She said, thank you. And then she dissolved into tears. Now, if <laughs> this, this woman is uber competent. All, uh, if, if you came to my community, people would know her. She's on boards. She chairs this and that. She's got a wonderful family. People would look at her and say, I wish I had her life. And here she is broken down in tears in front of me because her mother said thank you. And she had never heard her mother say thank you before. In other words, serving a bitter, ungrateful person just about killed her. That is not what it is like to serve God. If you have children, have you ever had a little one come into the kitchen with a crayon drawing? Mommy, I drew a picture of you. And you look at it and it kind of looks like Sasquatch. And... And what do you say? That's a terrible drawing. Go back and try again. No, you don't do that. What do you do? Oh, honey, that's so wonderful. We're going to put it right up on the refrigerator. Now notice that that child already knows that you take pleasure in him or her. And you do. And it is not the quality of the artistic craftsmanship.
Okay, now someone just said, but to please God, wouldn't I need to keep the law? Yeah, you would think so. So I guess he's going to try to say now, no, 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 no. We can, now he's already said that we have the power to keep the law. He's already said that we now, because we're Christians, we mind the things of the spirit. And he's already said that God changes our heart, that we're subjected to the law. But now it seems he's getting ready to go in a direction that if I just show up with a, a picture that looks like Sasquatch and it's really, you know, supposed to be my parent, oh, God's going to be like, oh, that's so cute. God's going to accept it. So I guess maybe, so, uh, so I guess this is going to be, oh, you, you did it. You tried as long as you try. Well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Why would God accept my trying if he's already given me the ability to keep the law? My mind is already set on the law and he's changed my heart that I'm subjected to the law. It would think he would be like, no, you can do it. Do better. So I don't know what's the point of telling me the Holy Spirit has given me all this ability if he's about to back it up and go, well, you know, God will just accept your best. I don't really know. That seems to be contradictory. No, you can do it. It would be like, it would be like your daughter is one of the greatest painters in the history of mankind, right? Like it's, it's the, your daughter has the ability to paint a Van Gogh or any other famous painter. He, she, she can paint whatever she wants. She's like, you know, this great prodigy. And she comes walking in and go here, I drew a picture of you. And you're like, and it's like a stick figure. And you're like, come on now. Yeah. That's what you give me. You have the ability. I've seen your your paintings hang hang in some of the greatest art museums in the world, and that's what you give me. Okay, there maybe be a little different. According to him, God's given me the ability. I can keep the law. My mind is on on the things of the spirit, not of the flesh, and my heart has been so transformed that I'm subjected to the law. But now he seems to be trying to, now he's got to account for the fact that we're never going to pull that off. It seems like, hey, this is what you have, but we all know the best you're ever going to produce is the drawing of a Sasquatch. That seems to be where he's going. Maybe, maybe, maybe we've got this wrong. Maybe he, maybe he stopped his, because I've done it in my preaching. You're making one point and then you get distracted and you start making a separate point that actually distracts from your first point. Maybe he's going to circle back around to his first point and this will all make sense. Let's see. That leads you to well up in love for that little one who's brought you the picture of Sasquatch that he thinks somehow looks like you. It's the, that he, she is your own. That child belongs to you. You brought that child into the world. And you love that child. That's what it's like pleasing the Heavenly Father. There's a, there's a scene in Chariots of Fire, which most of you are too young to have ever seen. Um, Chariots of Fire is a movie about two British runners. One is an unbeliever. One is a believer. One is a, a Jewish man named Harold Abram who ran for England. One is a Scottish man. I have to ask this question. Why is it that chariots of fire have shown up in more sermon illustrations than I can count? Why is that? Why, why, what is it about that movie that every, that, that, that there was a time it was just nonstop. It was like, Every Christian has to see Chariots of Fire. If you don't like this movie, you're unregenerate. It's like the Lord of the Rings thing. I don't get why some movies show up within Christianity and it's like, 
This movie is the model of godliness, holiness, righteousness, and morality. I don't, I don't, why is, what, it was Lord of the Rings, Chariots of Fire. Those two movies have been shoved down my throat so much within Christianity that just hearing the mere names, it makes me want to scream. I, I just, I just don't get it, but okay. Chariots of Fire, Chariots of Fire. All right. I'm still trying to figure out. I don't really need Chariots of Fire. I really don't need an illustration about a little kid drawing a picture of their parent that looks like Sasquatch. What I need to understand is you literally just told everyone that we now have the ability to keep the law, that we now, our minds are set on the things of the spirit and our hearts have been so transformed that we've subjected ourselves to the law and that we can please God, those are the things you told us, but you're not giving us any actual, practical, tangible way in what this looks like, and you're not even bothering to deal with the millions of questions that should arise, because you're telling me all of this is my power, all of this is my ability, all of this is true, but you're yet to even explain why we continue to sin Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but I guess we're going to talk about chariots of fire. So here we go. Chariots of fire, right? Here we go. Named Eric Little, who ran for Scotland and uh, who became a very famous missionary and died in a Japanese prison camp in China in the Second World War. And in that movie, there is actually a fictitious scene. Eric Little's sister was still alive when the movie was made, and she was really hurt about the scene because it never happened. It made it look like she was not supportive of Eric's running uh, in the races. And, and they're having this discussion on Arthur's seat, this beautiful scene in Edinburgh. And uh, she's objecting to, to Eric spending so much time with his athletic pursuits when he could be doing mission work. And he says to her, Jenny, Jenny, don't fret yourself, Jenny. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, what was Eric Little saying in that statement? Um, he was saying he knew that God is the one who gave him his athletic ability. God was the one who gave him the ability to run really fast. And when he was doing what he was created to do, he knew that his heavenly father was pleased because that's what God made him to do. Have, 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 you, ever, have you ever seen a dog running free in a field? just doing the things that dogs were created to do, it's almost Edenic. It's restorative, watching a dog do what it's supposed to do. When we are what God made us to be and do what God made us to do, it is not bondage, it is freedom, and he takes pleasure in that. And all the imperfections don't take away from that glorious reality. You I, am, I am so confused. He has spent ample time telling me all of my ability. Now he's just saying, hey, if you'll just do what God calls you to do, well, this is a, ser a sermon about sanctification. So what you're telling me, if I do what God calls me to do, be holy, be righteous, love my neighbor. If I, if I keep all of the law, 
God will be happy. But now you're telling me God will be happy even with my imperfections. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't understand. Someone just said, so, so when the unbeliever does what God made them to do, all good. It, it, it does feel like he's making stuff up. Not only does it seem like he's making stuff up, it seems like this has nothing to do with the actual. T- it's like he, because you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Now you can do all of these things. Now, when you do those things, God calls you to do. Then God takes pleasure in you. Okay, but you don't have. But it doesn't change if you have imperfections. Well, why would I have imperfections? Again, going back through the sermon, I now have the ability to keep the law. My mind is on the spirit, not on the flesh. My heart has been transformed so that I am subject, I am subjected to the law and that I can please God. Those are very clear statements he has made in the sermon. Now it's somehow, hey, if you'll just do what God calls you to do, God's, God's happy. Even if it has imperfections. But he's not explained why there would be imperfections if, he, if I'm now in a situation where there doesn't have to be imperfections. See, this is the state, this happens in the evangelical church all the time. You can do it. But hey, if you can't and if you don't, it's all good. Well, wait a minute. Could you explain that? He's got like nine minutes or maybe eight minutes. Let's see if he. I'm just waiting for a dramatic conclusion here. Clearly, we're not going to get any explanation. Maybe we'll get something in summary that will make sense. Yes, just like the little child, everything we do has imperfection in it. But he takes pleasure in it because it is what he created us to be. We're doing what he created us to do. That's not bondage. It's freedom. And so, yes, we don't want to think that we're performing to try to get God to love us. But we do want to understand that because God's love is upon us and because God's love for us was prior to our love for him, he takes pleasure in our obedience Okay, he takes pleasure in my obedience, but he will still take pleasure in my obedience, even if it is contaminated by disobedience, even though I have the ability to not disobey. (laughs) I'm so confused. I'm so confused. Okay, I'm just I'm just going to rock back and forth. I'm just going to rock back and forth. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't under Christianity sometimes is so just we say words without ever thinking about logical connection, logical progression of thought, taking things to a logical conclusion. 
We just say words. I think, I think, I think this is what Christians say. Just say spiritually sounding words. We don't care if they make any sense. We don't care where they go logically. We don't care about logical conclusions. We don't care about logical con- consistency. Just say spiritually sounding words. If you say spiritually sounding words, we will say amen. We will write them in our journal. We will tell you you're the greatest preacher in the world. We don't care about logical consistency. Hey, God will take pleasure in your obedience, even if it's disobedient. (laughs) However, you have the ability to never disobey. (laughs) So I don't understand. I don't understand. Okay. Oh, man, this is getting bad. This is getting so bad. He takes pleasure in it. That's good news, sisters. Good, good news. Here's a third thing that I want you to see in this passage. Look at verses 12 to 17. The Spirit's goal is that we will truly know that we are sons of God. And let me just pause and say, all of you sisters in Christ are sons of God. And what that means, especially for Paul, is you are co-inheritors with Christ. Daughters were not inheritors in those days. Sons were, and you are co-inheritors, sisters in Christ. That's why you're included in all the brethren uh, addresses in the New Testament. You are sons of God. And the Spirit's goal is that you would not only know that you are sons, but that you would actually live life as God's son, both in freedom and obedience. In other words... So the Spirit's goal... The spirit has a goal that you will be obedient. All right. What can stop the goal of eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God? Me. God's goal is thwarted. God's goal is stopped 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because we are never truly obedient. Our, even our best obedience is corrupted by our, self, our, 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 our unrighteousness and by our self-righteousness and by our sin. So his goal is that you're obedient. But his goal is never met ever in any meaningful way. Even though you try to convince yourself that it is, it isn't. So I'm. Sonship is not only a status that gives us great security and comfort, though it does. To know that we have been called the children of God, to know that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, to know that we are sons of God, to know that Christ by his spirit has accomplished in us what Adam ruined in the garden. That All of that is glorious and wonderful and true and important, but it is also, sonship is also a motivation to godliness. When we realize we are God's son. We want to live like that. We want to look like our Heavenly Father. And even if you've had an earthly father that has not 
accurately imaged what the Heavenly Father is like, you can long to be like your Heavenly Father who has never failed you and who has always loved you and has always cared for you. To be like Him. Sonship is not only a status for comfort, it's a motivation to godliness. Fourth, look at verses 26 and 27. I want you to see that the Spirit helps you to pray in the Christian life. The Spirit helps you to pray in the Christian life. The children of God have two intercessors. You have Christ in glory ever living to intercede for you, and you have the Holy Spirit with you in this earthly tabernacle. You've got two intercessors interceding for you, and when you don't know what to pray or how to pray for it, the Spirit helps you. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and that is so important in the Christian life. Listen to these beautiful words from James Philip. Even when, through the pressures of life and the accompanying spiritual darkness, we grope helplessly and inarticulately in prayer, God still hears. For confused and even mistaken as we may be, he discerns the voice of the Spirit in our prayers, and he is not confused, but is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. This is an important and illuminating thought for spiritual life. In the fight of faith, there are times when pressures are such that bewilderment and even darkness assail the soul. And it is almost impossible to remain clear-eyed. Often a horror of real darkness comes down upon our spirit and words fail for prayer and even thoughts until a hard, unyielding torpor comes upon our spirits. It is then when we can do no more than groan inarticulately that he groans in our groans with unutterable intensity and the nameless, wordless agony of spirit that we sometimes endure but cannot understand, God understands. The spirit does that for you. You've got no words to lift up to God. He does. And he knows just the words to lift up to God. And he will hear your prayers and he will reply to your prayers. You know, it, it strikes me, if I'm reading Romans, uh, if I'm reading Daniel 9 right, Gabriel tells Daniel that that prayer, which was a prayer for the children of Israel to be restored from captivity back to the land of Israel, that that prayer was part of God's instrumental purposes in bringing about the coming of the Messiah into the world. And it is not lost on me that Luke tells me that it's Gabriel that goes to Mary to tell her that she is going to bear the son that God is sending into the world. Daniel, I think, was groaning with groans too deep for words, and the Spirit took that prayer. Now, that's an interesting concept. We could go to Daniel and Luke and look at that. That's really interesting. I... I'm still, I still don't understand. He, you see how fast he, he made all kinds of claims 
Then he seemed to backtrack on the claim, seeming to say God will be pleased with our disobedience. However, he calls it obedience. He doesn't explain any of this. And now he's just moving on quickly. Not, not even, he, he didn't even bother. To, he didn't even come close to explaining, wait a minute, you have the ability to keep the law. You have a, a mind now set on the things of God. Your heart has been so transformed that you've subjected yourself to the law and you can please God. But somehow you please God, not in obedience, but in your disobedience, which, but he, but he still said, well, we please God in our obedience. It, that didn't even make any sense. And now he's just moved right on. No, no explanation. Well, I still doesn't make, a, it, this whole sermon is supposed to be about sanctification. And now after listening to 36 minutes and we only about two minutes left, I still don't understand sanctification at all. No explanation to what it is, how it works. It's, he just made claims. He just made claims and no, didn't even bother to explain how it doesn't work. This is, this is what ha has driven me so crazy through our entire study of the Holy Spirit is you have to spend your life hearing all of these things that the Spirit is supposedly doing, all the power he supposedly gives you, all of the ability you supposedly have that clearly it isn't happening. And he used it as an instrument for bringing the Savior into this world. The Spirit helps us to pray when we don't know what to pray. Thank God for that continual ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in life. That is not bad news. That is really good news. One last thing. Look at verses 28 and 29. This very fair, famous work, God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But notice, notice what the purpose is. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, it has been God's purpose from the foundation of the world to conform you to the image of his son and that the spirit is doing here and now continually in your sanctification and it will be completed fully then in glorification. God's purpose... Now, if you go back to the earlier part of the sermon, why does it have to wait till glorification? You've already told me that because I have the spirit, I have the ability to keep the law. My mind is on the spirit, not on the flesh. My heart has been transformed so that I've subjected myself to the law and that I can please God. Now you're telling me it's God's will for me to be conformed, but it won't happen until glorification. So, why does it take till glorification if he's already given me the ability to obey perfectly now? <laughs> he's not even giving me any ex. Oh. All right, well, let's just finish. Before the foundation of the world is that you would be like his son. You, know, you remember the passage where C.S. Lewis says, if you could see a glorified Christian in heaven, you would be tempted to fall down and worship him. 
It is the spirit that is conforming you to the image of the son. Sometimes it feels like he's killing you when he's doing it. Because he's killing sin and sometimes he's killing sin. Now, wait a minute. So he's the one doing it. Now, if he's the one doing it, you've already said earlier. So any good thing is God, but any bad thing is me. If he's killing sin, how can I stop him from killing sin? You're telling me he only kills sin when I allow him to, but I can stop him whenever I want to. Why can't he kill my not wanting to so that my wanting not wanting to becomes a wanting to and therefore I could reach sinless perfection. And why does he have to continue to kill sin when you've already told me that he, I, I don't know. This is like a list of, of contradictions. I know this. God saved me, right? And when he saved me, he imputed the righteousness of his son to me. And so in Christ, I am perfectly conformed to his image because in him, I have died and I now live in him. I live by the faith of God in my position. I am dead and I live in him covered in his righteousness. I basically, I die and it's just the son. I am conformed perfectly to his image and my position not in my practice. Now, I have no problem arguing that I am being conformed to his image, but you have to at least explain some way, somehow, how this supposedly works, right? He's killing, he's do the Spirit's doing all of this, but okay, he's already said earlier in the sermon, the Spirit's doing this work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Again, I, I and, and part one, I asked this question, how long have you been saved? How, how sanctified are you today versus from the day you became saved? From the day of your salvation till today, how sanctified are you? Now, supposedly the Spirit's working 24-7. Supposedly the Spirit's killing sin in you. Well, at this point, how long does it take to kill all sin so that I'm sinless? All right, now... um, Okay, I thought someone just posted a comment and then I missed it. Okay, if I missed your question, I apologize. Um, I let's just finish. Let's just finish. That is very dear to us. You know, have have you ever ministered to somebody under the powerful control of an addiction, and one part of them knows? that if I don't give up this particular addiction, I'm going to lose everything. But there's another part that says, I've got to have it. And when the spirit kills something like that, controlling our lives, what does it feel like? It feels like we're dying. But that's his ultimate purpose is not to make us feel like we're dying. His ultimate purpose is to conform us to the image of the Son so that we look like Jesus. We believe like Jesus believes. We think what Jesus thinks. We want what Jesus wants. We desire what Jesus desires. We long for what Jesus longs for. We love people like Jesus loves. The Spirit's doing that. And that was the purpose of God from before the foundation of the world. 
the Spirit's ongoing work, the Spirit's continual work in the Christian life is not bad news. It is very, very good news. Be encouraged, sisters. The Spirit is at work in you. Let's pray. There's no good news in this. This is the most contradictory train wreck I've ever heard in my life. You now have the power to keep the law. Boom. All right, good. I can do it. All right. Now, your mind is now set on the spirit, not on the flesh. All right, boom. I'm really in good shape. I can do it. And my mind obviously wants to do it. Boom. Your heart has been so transformed that now you're subjected to the law of God. Okay, so now my heart wants to do it. My mind wants to do it. And I can do it. And I can please God. All right, man. I should I should be there. I, 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 sh- I, I should make to sinless perfection. Well... He then has this kind of like interruption where, well, you, you just may, you know, you may try to please God, but you, all you, you, all you may be able to hand God is like a painting of a Sasquatch when you're really trying to draw a beautiful painting of your pitch, of your, of your parents. So, but God will still be pleased with it. Well, wait a minute. So God's going to be pleased with my disobedience as long as I try. Well, but you already told me that I can't. No explanation. Okay, now, the Spirit is working in you 24 hours a day, seven days a week to conform you to the image of Christ. And he's killing sin, all right? But but at the same time, it, all the good is God, all the bad is me. So is that me stopping the spirit? So can I stop the spirit? Yeah, you can stop the spirit. All right. So I, so the spirit is not more powerful than me, no, but the purpose of God and his goal is to conform you to his image. So I can overcome the purpose and goal of God. There's no explanation here. Let me state it again. When I became saved, in my position, I want you to hear this again, in my position, in Christ, because I am united with him, I stand in him, I have died, I no longer live, I live my life by the faith of the Son of God, in my position, I am dead, Christ lives, it's only his righteousness, it's his obedience, I am no longer seen in my position, I am truly a new creature, the old is gone, all has become new. In my position, all of that is true. In my position, I have been conformed to the image of God. In my position, in my practice, I still have a sinful nature, I still sin, and I do not have the power to stop sinning. I do not have the power to keep the righteous demands of the law. I'm going to fall short. I'm going to fall short. Now, yes, I do believe there is a work happening in me, but clearly it doesn't, it's not, you've got to explain it somehow that there's a work in me, but you can't explain it in some way which seems to describe that all of a sudden all that, you know, God's going to just wipe out all of this sin. It clearly seems that sin still, I mean, there's just no way to get around it. God is leaving it there in me. There has to be a divine purpose for it. I'm not saying that that excuses it, but, but I mean, he could get rid of the sinful nature. He does not. He keeps it there. If the Holy Spirit wants me to be perfectly without sin, he could accomplish that in, I don't know, five minutes, 10 seconds. He could, oh, you think, be able to pull it off in 10 years. That part of it has to be explained in some way, shape, or form. This sermon didn't explain any of those questions or any of those problems. So once again, we just listened to another sermon about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit where all of these claims of power and ability 
is handed out with no explanation on how that promise, those promises don't come anywhere close to the reality that every Christian experiences. There we go. So once again, I can't say that we're done. We're done for now with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's not a dramatic conclusion. It's, you know what? But it's a fitting conclusion because it captures the same frustration that we've had probably through all 20 hours of our work on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We will do a little bit more work probably starting next Sunday night and next Wednesday. Um, we'll do a little bit more, but what we'll do is we'll take a break and then I'll be back and I'll introduce a new week of Bible study for the new Bible study exercise for the week starting today. I I wish I had, I know you may be like, I, you know, I think someone at the, their last comment was just a what? A what with a question mark? I think as confused as they are, I am. And I think any Christian truly honest with the reality they know with what that preacher just claimed, they're going to be like, there's a disconnect somewhere. But he didn't bother to address, in a sense, the 5,000-pound 5, 5, elephant in the room. But he said, it's good news. How is it good news? By the end of this, I would be like, either I'm not saved, or God is not real, or the Bible is a lie, because clearly what he promised is not what people experience. And we got 2,000 years of church history to prove that, and you've got your life, and I have my life. All right, you can email me your disagreements to newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Short break, we come back, we introduce a new week of Bible study. Hopefully, it will be a little bit easier than the things we've struggled with over the last six weeks. But thanks for your participation. Those who've done the topical method of Bible study on the Holy Spirit, Turn it in whenever you can. Don't, don't worry if you're behind. Just finish it when you can. And uh, well, we'll see what's uh, in store for us this coming week. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless. Oh, oh. hang on. I was going to stop. <laughs> I was going to stop. Let's remind. We were, we were going to just uh, get the name of the conference that sermon came from. It's going to be right here. Hang on. Here we go. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Ligon Duncan. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. All right, TGC. So it's the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference, TGC, TGCW. If they would have written it out, we would have known the actual name, TGCW, but it was right there at the beginning, but we, we, weren't, uh, we weren't paying attention to it when we first introdu uh, introduced it. So it's not together for the gospel. I don't know why I said that. It's 
the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference 2021 is where this message came from. So there we have. I wanted to correct that. I'm sorry. I, I didn't catch myself to write when I got ready to hit stop. But now we can stop officially. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, we got to stop. All right, we'll be back shortly. God bless. <laughs> 